Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Minister today, God, that hearts would be so open that everyone would not see me, but that everyone would see you, and that there would be such an openness to what you want to do and what you want to say, and Holy Spirit, how you want to break out. And so we just yield ourselves to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to tell you about this season that I've been in. Paul, thank you so much for playing. No, 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 you ain't going anywhere. You're staying. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) I was just saying thank you. (laughs) I I love hearing you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about this season that I've been in. So... Last year, I went through like crazy burnout and um, uh, literally had a meltdown because I was carrying so much, like I was serving in so many different areas and there was so much going on. And um, I felt the Lord telling me specifically to um, start laying things down and to start simplifying my life. And I felt him also say to me that my business, ministry, brand, whatever you want to call it, living in light, I felt him saying to me that he wanted me to concentrate on that fully, like nothing else, just living in light. And anything that aligns with that assignment, that's what he wanted me to focus on. And also, many of you might know that last year, someone gave me 10,000 pounds. And, um, because of that, I felt the Lord was also saying to me that, Bobby, like financially, I've given you this 10 grand, like you can now focus on living in light fully and not even think about where funds are going to come from. So I felt that was God affirming this new season. And so I knew that after the summer, once I'd gone to Jubilee Church in October and come back, I knew that full time I would be working for living in light. And that was it. And I was super, super, super excited. And over last year, over the summer, I had that expectation. And God had already started doing so many supernatural things inside of me that were the answers to prayers that I had prayed for years. And most of these prayers were around what I wanted him to do on the inside of me, like... I'd been praying for the rhythm of heaven. I'd been praying for like the structure of heaven, the routine of heaven. Like, Lord, show me what the schedule of heaven looks like. And because I've lived by faith and I've worked for myself, like literally for the last nine years, like I really need like my days to be aligned with heaven. Like I need to know what the rhythm of heaven is in my life. And so last year I began to really see God do something tangible, like show me and give me a discipline to work up, wake up like super early and um, really pray and like um, really spend time with him with like real structure. I'd started going to the gym as well. So I was like being really, really disciplined. I was eating better. Like really I saw like procrastination, I mean, just dropped off me and I was an epic procrastinator. And I literally felt like this discipline of heaven where procrastination had nothing on me. Like I was so productive and at the same time, the Lord blessed me with like a new studio inside of my flat. And so I was like so creative, like every single day I'd find myself being super, super, super creative. And I was like, I couldn't wait for the summer to be over and then for me to start this new season. And God had given me lots of ideas. And so I was excited about all that was going to happen. 
But whilst all this is going on, um, my two nephews were really, really playing up. And so I lived downstairs in a flat, and then my nephews and Cameron, my niece, many of you will know her, and Caelan comes sometimes here as well. You'll know him as well. He's the youngest. And their mum lives upstairs. So my brother has the flat upstairs. I have the flat downstairs. But my brother's quite absent. And um, him and his girlfriend, they like separated. Um, but obviously they have three children together. And so my brother will kind of like come and go and he can be gone for ages, but then he'll be back. And my precious sister-in-law, even though they're not married, like she, she is my sister-in-law and she's so lovely. Like, even though my brother hasn't always been good to her, she's very, very good to us. And she really allows us to have so much access to the children, even though they themselves don't have the most kind of, um, honest or loyal relationship to each other but so last summer things started getting really really crazy with my nephews and um at this time like my youngest nephew was only six so he hadn't turned seven yet he was six and um he'd taken a knife to school and I remember like I am like the disciplinarian in the house and so um unfortunately um and so with Vicky, she's so precious, she's so wonderful. She's the breadwinner in the house and she looks after the children and she buys them whatever they want, but she's not a great disciplinarian. And her yes isn't yes and her no isn't no because she doesn't yet know the Lord yet and she doesn't understand about absolutes. And so her follow through is really quite rubbish. And so what ends up happening is they will send she will send the kids down to me to be disciplined. And so at the time when he was caught with a knife, like I had to discipline him and um, I'd tell the boys off quite a lot, but then they would just go back upstairs again. And so it was quite a, just like a, it wasn't the most intimate relationship that I had with them. They would get in trouble. I would discipline them and send them back up again. And um, it got to around the summertime where three days in a row, my little nephew had been in trouble every single day. And normally, if he gets in trouble and I discipline him, he will fix up for a little while and there won't be any problems. But during this particular week, um, he'd been in trouble three days in a row. And three days I disciplined him and it didn't seem to make a difference. And um, on the third day, I found myself getting really, really like frustrated with him. And um, I got hold of him and I shook him. And like, I've never done that before. And even though I'm from an Indian home and beating your child is pretty traditional, but we've never, like, we've never laid a finger on these boys. Like, we just don't use that kind of discipline with them. But I found myself grabbing hold of him and shaking him really, really hard. And there was like this fear in his eyes. And my nephews have never been scared of me. They respect me, but I've never seen fear in their eyes. And um, I just like pushed him back and I went downstairs. And I like, I couldn't believe what I'd just done. And um, for the next two days, like my heart felt so heavy. Like I couldn't believe that I'd resorted to that. I couldn't believe that that was my reaction. And normally when I discipline them, like we will talk about what went wrong and I will be quite calm. But on that occasion, like I was horrified, like grieved at the way that I had reacted. And after about two days, like I just kept thinking about these two boys and um, like the fact that like they are being groomed for destruction, you know, and in the mornings over that season, like because I lived downstairs, I would hear them as they would be going to school. I would hear them in the mornings and I'd be lying in my bed and I could hear like 
Vicky telling them off and they'd be arguing and they'd be screaming and they sounded so distressed and so angry and it grieved my heart that, that they're going to school carrying this kind of trauma, even if it's been brought on by themselves. And because I am literally just the one that disciplines them, like I don't necessarily have permission from my sister-in-law to actually be able to impart into their life. The only access I really have is disciplining them. And, um, So when I would lie there in my bed over the summer, I could hear them and my heart would hurt. And so over that two-day period, after I had shook him, like, all I could just think about was these two boys' lives. Like, what was going to become of them? Like, they're a byproduct of their environment. And God has such an amazing destiny for them. And they're being groomed for destruction. And um, about two days later, I just got on my face and I was, like, weeping and praying and I was saying like Jesus you have to help us like we don't know how to raise these children and up until that point like in my own experience and in my own like disciplinary skills and blah 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 I'd say I'm fine with kind of like developing children but on that day on the floor I was just like I haven't got a clue like I actually don't have a clue on how to raise these children so that they're going to know the love of God and so that they're going to be everything that God has called them to be. And then I said to the Lord, like, I was like, Lord, um, give me and Vicky wisdom. Like, how do we raise these children? Like, how do we raise these children? Help us because in our own strength, we haven't got a clue. And then over the next, like, few weeks really I could really feel the Lord's heart over these boys and um you know in the scripture it says that God remembered you know like he remembered the Israelites or he remembered Lot or he remembered different people and I felt that over those coming weeks like God was saying that I remember these boys like I am remembering these boys I'm bringing these boys into my remembrance and um he began to really convict me and he began to like just speak to my heart like Bobby you've been too busy for them like you've actually been doing all these different things and you're not giving them any time and um he reminded me of a couple of years before that where um in the summer I had looked after them for a little while and I'd taken them to school um and collected them over a certain period of time. And in that time, like, we'd prayed together and we'd laughed together and we'd looked at the Bible together. And I remember the eldest out of the two had given his life to the Lord during that period. And, um, but it didn't last because they need discipling. You can't just give them the Lord and then walk away. And that's what I did. I just, yeah, get saved. Kieran is really fun. And then I didn't give them any time. And so... These two boys, it's like they'd forgotten what it meant to actually have a heavenly father. And the Lord kept reminding me that when you were with them and you gave them your time and you invested in them, their lives changed. And so he began to convict me and he began to say, like, Bobby, it's not okay. It's not okay that you know me and that I am in you, Christ within you, the hope of glory. And that there are people in your home that are walking paths of destruction. It's not okay. It's not okay that on your watch, your two nephews are being groomed for destruction. It is not okay that you have light inside of you and these boys are being groomed for darkness. And as he began to convict my heart, he gave me this vision. And I saw my nephews sitting in my studio creating. And um, 
And I just felt the Lord like say that, um, that creating and creativity and being in an environment of love is going to redirect the direction of their lives. And then I felt like I began to say, like, Lord, like, what are you saying? When I come back from America and I'm starting full time, we're living in light. Like, maybe do I start being with them again? Do I start taking them to school every day? Do I start, like, after school, maybe having them with me for four or five hours each night? Like, is that what you're saying? And then I was like, but Lord, what if I drop off? What if I take on that responsibility and actually I drop off and then I don't stay? And what if Vicky doesn't want me to look after them? And Vicky's already got plenty of childcare. She had that down. And so when I went to America, after I'm having all these thoughts with the Lord and I'm going to America and he's still just speaking to me about my nephews and I even spoke to Diana about it. Many of you know Diana Anderson, and we talked about it. And I was just praying into it, like, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? And then the day I got back um, from America, I went for a little nap, and then I woke up, and Vicky was there. And I said, like, Vicky, how's it going? Like, what's going on? And she said, Bobby, I'm at my wits end. I don't know what to do. They've stopped my tax credits. I have no childcare. I've got no one to look after the boys. And I was like, yes, Jesus. So I said, I'll have them. I'll take them. And then she, she was a bit shocked. And I was like, literally, I'll have them. I'll have them every single day apart from Tuesdays because I teach on Tuesdays. And, um, and so we agreed that I would then begin to look after them. And so two days later, and funny enough, it was the day after I'd last preached here. Two days later, I began this new season of me working full-time, living in light, and looking after my nephews. And um, I was super excited because, like, because of the money that I'd been given, like, I had so much fabric, I had patterns ready for the new collection, you know, I had this time now, you know, I was going to look after my nephews, take them to school in the mornings, then work throughout the day, and then go and collect them, and then we'd be creating in the evening, like, it was all good, that's what I thought, but it ended up, like, being such a juggle, and I ended up really struggling because being with children really exposes your dysfunction. And um, I don't even know how parents do it. (laughs) And it ended up being really, really hard. And um, I really needed the Lord. Like I had to wake up super early every single day because I knew that I couldn't give these boys Bobby. Like they needed to have Jesus. And so before they'd come down at quarter to eight every morning, I would go and spend like ages with the Lord just so that I could actually give them an encounter with love and not with Bobby. And, um, But I struggled massively, like I found that just being with them would bring out so many fleshly aspects of my character and God was so kind and he was so good, like every single day I'd have to go into prayer after they'd go to school, like repent for the way that I had behaved and the things that I'd said and for having favoritism between the two, like all of this stuff and God was very, very gracious to me, very gracious to me and I would weep and I'd be like, Lord, like you got to help my dysfunction. You gotta help these frailties and he would just show me, he'd be like, Bobby, when I look at you and I look at the boys, I don't see an auntie and her nephews, I see my children. Like you are all my children and your dysfunction is no different to their dysfunction and I've got just as much mercy for you as I've got for these boys and um he would really, really, really reveal himself to me through all of this time. 
But what was also happening is like when I would take them to school, there'd be frustration in my heart because obviously being around the boys in the morning was hard. And then I'd take them to school and then I'd come back and, um, and then I'd be right collection and then I'd be cutting and, and I'd be making stuff and I'd find that I had no momentum. Like I had no rhythm and I'd find that even when I'd finally got around to doing stuff that I didn't even like anything that I made. And, um, then the boys, I'd go and get the boys after school. And then because the day hadn't been that great and because I hadn't really made much progress when they'd come home, I'd get like this sense of urgency now where I was like, oh my gosh, I need to redeem the day, redeem the day, redeem the day. And so when they'd come home, I'd be on their case and just like, just sit down and do some drawing, will you? And, um, like if they asked me for something, if they were like, oh, Bobby, can I have a pencil? I'd be like, I gave you a pencil yesterday. <laughs> or like, Bobby, can you just help us? Like, can, can you help me draw? Like, and I'd be like, oh, for crying out loud, you're meant to be an artist, aren't you? Like, <laughs> and this vision I'd heard of them, like, creating, it was just gone out the window. Like, all I was just like, boys, I'm trying to make a new collection. Can you just leave me alone? And, um... This went on for about a month and the whole time, some days I'd have good days and other days I'd have terrible days. And um, as I would make things, like I couldn't feel the breath of God on any of it. Like I could feel the breath of God on me being with the boys, but everything I made and everything I did, like I could not feel the breath of God on it. And every single day, like my heart would be so grieved because I'd be like, Lord, where are you? Like, where are you? I've got everything that I should have. I've got the answers to my prayers. I've got money coming in. I've got fabric. I've got patterns. You know, I'm going after my inheritance because that summer I'd really been feeling God talk to me about inheritance and talk to me about the fullness of inheritance and that my inheritance is his inheritance. His inheritance is my inheritance. And so here I was like really ready to step into my inheritance and I couldn't feel his breath on any of it. And so as this went on for about a month, I remember one day being at the gym and like listening to Sean Bowles on my headphones. And Sean Bowles has like this prophetic like um, podcast that he does. And he shares so many different testimonies of the prophetic. And as I was to someone's testimony about all the amazing things that they were doing in God and the impact they were having and blah, blah, blah. I was getting really, really angry, like really angry, you know, and I was on the treadmill just feeling really sad after this month of like having so many expectations and none of it really manifesting and I was getting frustrated and and I was like, but Lord, like, what about my inheritance? Like, have I not given you everything? Like, have I not given you my time? Have I not given you, have I not laid everything down for you? Like, Lord, surely, surely it's time for me to step into my inheritance. And I remember walking home as I'm listening to this podcast and I walked through my door and I got on my face and I just again began to weep because I was like, Lord, like there's got to be more than this. Like, I don't understand. Like, where are you? Where am I going wrong? Like, why am I not feeling your breath? Like, where are you in all of this? Like, where is your breath? Where is your direction? Where is your blueprint? Where is your strategy? Like, where have I gone wrong? And I began to just repent. Like, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for having this season all mapped out in my mind and thinking that you're going to show up in a certain way and then putting you in a box and expecting you to show up and then not really even asking you afresh, Lord, teach me how to number my days. Like, give me a heart of wisdom, Lord. And so I began to just confess and just say, Lord, I am so sorry. 
Like, show me, show me how to lead through this season. Show me how to move. Show me how to be an auntie. Show me how to fulfill the vision that you've given me for these two boys. Like, how am I actually going to serve these two boys in this season? And then that same night, I went to a a conference um, locally. And I went with such expectation. I was like, Lord, I need you to show up. Like, I need a strategy. I need some kind of a strategy for this season. Like, you've got to show me the way. And then I went to that meeting and everything was just about worship and prayer. And and then everyone just repented and everyone just yielded themselves to just living a life of worship and prayer. And I felt him saying, like, Bobby, this is the strategy. Like, just worship. (laughs) Just pray. And then... I felt like so free because if there's anything I know how to do is worship and pray. I don't really know how to pursue calling. Like I don't actually really know how to do all the other stuff. Like the thing that I know how to do, the thing that I've developed as a life is to worship and pray. And so, um, so I, was, I can do that, Lord. I can absolutely do that. And then everything, every sense of obligation for that season just broke off. Every place of you need to do this and you need to do that. All of it just broke off. All I need to do is just worship and pray. And then I came home and um, the following morning, like I was just with the Lord. And I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to worship and pray. And um then I was in the word and I was in Genesis and all of a sudden the Lord gave me a rhema word for this season and he gave me a strategy. Once I entered into rest, he gave me a strategy. No more self-effort. I didn't even know I was stepping into self-effort. I thought I was fulfilling what he had shown me, but I had somewhere along the line stepped into self-effort and striving and then he brought me back into that place of rest and um and in that place of rest, I felt him give me a rhema word for the season. And so um, he took me to Genesis 26, 15 to 25. And um, here, this scripture is where Isaac is redigging the wells of his inheritance. And these are the wells that his father Abraham had dug. And so Isaac is now redigging these wells and he's experiencing a lot of contention and he's experiencing a lot of resistance. And as he tries to pursue his inheritance, he has many enemies. And in that time, it was common practice for wells to be choked up and for inheritances to be stopped. And so the opponents and the enemies would actually stuff the wells and choke the wells with dirt and with sand and with stones and often even with like dead carcasses to stop um, the owner of the wells from being able to access the water, feed, uh, you know, hydrate themselves and hydrate their animals and their flock, etc. And also it was a message that they were sending out, which was saying that you are not welcome here. So the enemies would send this message to be um, 
unhospitable and to be unwelcoming and to intimidate and to steal the inheritance. And so that's what Isaac was facing. He was facing opposition because of who his father was, his father, Abraham. And it's the same for us. Like as we pursue our inheritance, we will have the enemy try and choke. We will have the enemy try and block those places of inheritance because of who our father is. And this is what Isaac was wrestling with in this particular part of scripture. Um, so I'm just going to read from Genesis 26, 15 to 25. It says, now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped by filling them with dirt. Then Abimelech, who was the Philistine king, said to Isaac, go away from here because you are far too powerful for us. So Isaac left the region and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now Isaac again dug and reopened the wells of water which had been dug in the days of Abraham his father because the Philistines had filled them up with dirt after the death of Abraham and he gave the wells the same names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there was a flow of flowing, sorry, found there was a well of flowing spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with them, saying, the water is ours. So Isaac named the well Ezek, which means quarreling, and it speaks of contention. Then his servants dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So Isaac named it Sitna, which means enmity, which means um, enemy and opposition. And Sitna is the feminine form of the word Satan. So the second well brought them uh, more enemy activity. He moved away from there and dug another well. And they, they did not quarrel over that one, so he named it Rehoboth, which means broad places, enlargement, wide, wide open spaces. Saying, for now, the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be prosperous in the land. Then he went up from there to Bathsheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the Lord, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless and favor you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord in prayer. He pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. And the rhema word that the Lord gave me through this passage of scripture was the last verse where it says that Isaac built an altar and called on the name of the Lord in prayer. He pitched his tent there and then Isaac's servants dug a well. And the Lord clearly said to me, Bobby, that you're going to do what Isaac did. You're going to build an altar. You're going to build your home. And then I will send servants to dig your wells. And before any of us can really tap into our inheritance, before we get that breakthrough, before we have access to the wells that God has for us, we must first build our altars. We must first build our home. We must first ensure that the very infrastructure around us is secure and is built on God. And then when we do that, then he sends the servants to dig our wells. He sends the resources. He brings us into wide open spaces. 
And so I felt the Lord say, Bobby, build an altar like you've never built an altar before. And I'm just going to say a little bit about an altar. Everyone here knows what an altar is, but because of our beautiful young ones here, I'm going to explain what an altar is. So in the temple, in the most holy place, there was a table and that was the altar. And the priest would come to that altar and he would sacrifice and he would sacrifice worship on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. And he would come and sacrifice animals on behalf of the sins of the people and on behalf of his own sins. And he would worship and pray at this altar. And there would be a place of fresh revelation of the promises of God at the altar. But Jesus has made a way that now we all get to be priests. And we all get to have our own altar where we get to bring offerings before the Lord as a lifestyle. That place where we get to ask for forgiveness, that place where we're reminded of the covenants that God has made with us, that place where we pray, that place where we build memorials of where God met us. And that's what an altar is for, is to build a memorial to say, yes, God met me here. I met with God here. I had an encounter here. And I've named this message, Every Breath, a Living Memorial. Because every one of our breaths should be a place of an altar. Where we say that God met us here. Every breath we take should be a moment where we glorify him and say he's meeting me right here. And an altar, when we build an altar, it's not just for ourselves. Altars are built as memorials for the next generation. So we're not just building altars for ourselves to commemorate the way God has met with us. We're building altars that will say to our children and their children and their children that my God is your God. And what he's done for me, he will do for you. And our children will say, yes, the same God that did that for my family and their family and their family before them. He's the same God that's going to do the same for me. And then I felt the Lord say, and then Bobby, out of that place, you're going to build your home. And he showed me, you're going to serve your nephews. You're going to serve them with your creativity. And when they ask you for a pencil, you're going to go and get them more than a pencil. You're going to get them a pencil in every single color. And when they ask you for your help, you're going to stop everything that you are doing and you're going to sit with them and you're going to teach them everything that you know. And when you eat, you're going to sit down and you're going to eat at the table with them and you're going to serve them. They're going to be your priority and out of your altar, you will love these boys. And then he said, and as you're doing that, I'll send the servants to dig your wells. You haven't got to worry about a thing. And so over those coming months and up until today, I just began to meditate on Romans 12.1, like I'd never meditated on it before. And in view of his mercies, in view of his mercies, I began to worship him. It became like my, my determined dedication 
my devotion to say thank you every single day for what he's done for me. Every single day. And there'd be days where I'd think that I poured myself out. Yesterday, Lord, I've given you everything. But in view of his mercies, this new song would come and this new prayer would come and this new place of gratefulness. And every day I would learn afresh what it means to die to myself and what it means to worship him because of what he's done for us and because he alone is worthy. He's worthy. Because of what he's done for us, I don't even think that we sometimes even realize what he's done for us. Like, if we spent all of our days worshiping him, it wouldn't be enough. The praise that we've got inside of us is not enough. It's not enough for what he's actually worthy of. So every day I would find something new to praise him about. And when I ran out of that, I just worship him because of who he is. Because he's beautiful and he's worthy and he's kind and he's beautiful in all of his ways. And he's attractive and he's winsome and he's wise and he's good. And he gave his life for us. He gave away everything. He stripped himself of his deity and his dignity and he became human. And then he died on the cross and he was naked at Calvary. And he did all of that for us and in view of his mercies. That we would make a dis, like a decisive devotion and dedication of our lives every single day to build an altar to him and say that we worship and magnify you because of what you have done. Because of who you are. And that was my agenda. That was all that I did every single day. And then the Lord would also take me to um, Psalm 84, 1 to 4, where it says, How lovely are your dwelling place. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Say, La. And then he would show me that, Bobby, your altar is where your two nephews are going to lay. And that your altar isn't just for yourself. There are people that are relying on your altar. There are people that don't know how to build an altar for themselves. And it's imperative that you build an altar so that they can come and lie at that altar in the seasons of their infancy. And this heavy but beautiful burden of just the inheritance of my family and the role that I had to play in my family coming to know the Lord and in these children and in my home, like being filled with the fragrance of Christ. Not just my flat downstairs, but that every single chamber in this house would be filled with wisdom and the knowledge of God and the beautiful treasures of his goodness. I had to take it upon myself, like, Lord, I want you to build this home because if any of us are building this home outside of you, it's in vain. 
And so he began to teach me how to pray for my family and how to pray for my home. And then out of that place, he began to revive my heart for the lost again because I'd been so busy and burnt out that I could walk past someone on the street and see them limping and not even pray. Like that's how it got to it. When I'd be ministering to people, I was ministering to them super quickly and praying for people super quickly because I had just so much going on. But in that place of just being with the Lord and just dedicating myself to him every day and simplifying my life and letting his voice become just so loud and so clear out of that place, like my heart just awoke afresh for the lost. And it woke afresh for my family. Like I'd gone through years without really praying for them. Like life kind of takes over, like your own walk with the Lord takes over, the kingdom takes over, and then you forget that they don't even know the Lord. And so I began to really pray and fast for my family once again. And then I began to evangelize once again. And I began to go after the lost. And I would be walking, I would literally go to Stratford, which is like about 20 minutes away. And then I'd come home. And then I'd just reflect and I'd already prayed for like five people. Like it, it, it wouldn't, it was like second nature because I'd been with him in such close proximity that I did not even notice the amount of people. Like when I'd jump on the bus and I'd be like, oh, what's wrong with your leg? And then I'd pray for their leg and I'd jump off and I'd see someone else. And then I'd walk past someone else. And it was just so natural. It was part of my breathing just to be praying for people and ministering to people because that's what happens when you're with him. It's a byproduct of being with him and I began to create margin in my life just to be available like I'd been so burnt out that there was no margin in my life for spontaneity there was no margin in my life for the Lord just to show up and be like Bobby I want to use you here or Bobby I want to use you there so I began to create margin in my life that said Lord I'm just available like you can just use me and if people want to call me and they want prayer like I'll pray with them for as long as they need like I began to take on more kids to mentor I began to take on more people to disciple and if people would ask me to disciple them I would say yes because I could whereas in the past I haven't been able to disciple as much as I wanted to and while all of this is going on I can feel the Lord's delight on all of it and um, even though I'd stopped working on the fashion collection I had like I was just being creative with the boys and I was being creative in like just Christmas gifts and making aprons and just doing stuff like that around the house and in my studio and I could feel the breath of the Lord like I could feel the delight of the Lord I could feel like everything that I couldn't feel in the season before over the collection but I could feel him singing over all of us, singing over me with my nephews, singing over them making things, singing over me making things, like it was such a sweet spot and I found like such a grace in this season where God was like, Bobby, I just want you to tie up loose ends. Like in this place of simplicity where you're just worshiping me, where your only agenda is to worship me and build an altar and to build your home. Out of that place, I want you to clean house. And he had me just clean and he had me like 
do admin. I mean, it's ridiculous. He gave me two days to sort out all my photos. I mean, it's nuts. Like, he was like, Bobby, I want you to file all your photos, take them off your iPad, take them off your Mac, put them in the Google Drive. Like, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is such a luxurious season of tying up loose ends. I mean, who gets that? But I could feel the Lord like working on my infrastructure. He was working on every single area of my life. And it was just moving and grooving to the rhythm of heaven in the most structured, beautiful, gracious, luxurious way. And while this is all happening, I'm just yielding myself and consecrating myself to him every single day and being like, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to make? What should I pick up? What should I lay down? And in that season, I felt him not allowing me to pioneer at all. Like he would not allow me to create anything new whatsoever. And every single time I'd ask like, Lord, do you want me to do anything new? I felt him saying, no, I just want you to build on the old. And in that place of building your home and in that place of building your infrastructure, I want you to look at those places in your life and I want to see those places strengthened. And I want you to go back, Bobby, and I want you to look at your bestsellers in your business and I want you to make them even better. And Bobby, I want you to look at those dreams and those desires and those products that you really enjoy making and I want you to make them excellent. And Bobby, I want you to look at your packaging, Bobby, and I want you to produce the best packaging possible for living in light. I want you to think about how your clients and how your customers receive their items of clothing. I want the spirit of excellence to increase over what you do. And he showed me, he was like, Bobby, I could take you to the next level and you can be weak or you can stay where you are at this moment and be super, super strong. What do you want? And I was like, Lord, it's a no brainer. Like I want to be super, super strong. I want to be super, super effective. And what I love, because even though I didn't notice it at the time, but over the last few few months as I went back to Genesis and I began to read everything before that rhema scripture that he gave me, I was amazed to find that Isaac did exactly the same thing. That he was a pioneering in that season. He was consolidating He was solidifying. He was strengthening. And so when he went back, he dug up his father's old wells, that which had already been established, that which he already possessed, and he solidified. And every single time he went back and he dug up an old well, there was no resistance. There was no contention. He was able to dig up those old wells, and he renamed them their original names. Because he wasn't trying to do anything new. He was trying to consolidate and strengthen that which had already been established. And every single time he went to pioneer, he came up against resistance. He came up against the enemy. He came up against his opponent. He came up against um, much, much, much opposition. So he understood And I really believe that we have to have an understanding. We have to be able to discern between the seasons of pioneering and the seasons of consolidation. Because if we try and build and if we try and pioneer when we're meant to be solidifying, anything that we pioneer will be built on a frail foundation. So we must understand the seasons. We must 
embrace those seasons of consolidation. Even when you have new dreams and desires for the more in your heart, make space for God to be able to strengthen that which he has already given you for your possession. And so as Isaac was obviously digging up old wells and there was no resistance, every single time he tried to pioneer, he would experience resistance. The third time he tried to dig a new well, he then knew that he had breakthrough because the Lord had taken him to wide open spaces and he knew that, okay, now I've stepped into a season of breakthrough. And when I understood that the season had actually shifted, I could discern it because I'd hearkened to his voice in that season of consolidation and of strengthening. I'd become so finely tuned to it that when the Lord then took me to wide open spaces, I knew that a shift had come. And that's what happened with Isaac. He knew that the Lord has now taken me to wide open spaces. But rather than build any more new wells in that spot, these scriptures tell us that he went back to Bathsheba. Bathsheba was where Abraham, his father, had dug a well. He went back to his inheritance. He went back to that which had already been given to him. And when he went back to that altar, when he went back to that well, there God met with him. There God renewed his covenant with him. There God reinforced his promises over him. And then Isaac built an altar. And there the scriptures tell us that not only did he build his altar, but he also built his home at the altar. And that's where his family remained all of their days. And I know for me, the altar has become so alive. It's become my default position. Even when I feel like, Lord, when I feel like the Lord is giving me open spaces and he's like, Bobby, babes, run. You can do whatever you want. And I just find myself running back to the altar because I've learned how to dwell there now. And I don't want to live anywhere else. Like That's where I want to move from. That's where I want to do life from, the altar. beautiful thing about the altar is that sometimes when we're caught up in different seasons and we're pursuing God and we we know we've heard his promises and we know kind of like the words that he's given us but it's only when we go back to the altar that he's truly be able he's truly able to renew his covenant with us where we get like clarity, where we worship him and we adore him and we recognize that he is a God that can be trusted. Sometimes we go through seasons and we can question his nature. We can question whether we even heard from him. But when we go back to the altar, we're reminded, he reminds us of his promises over our lives. He reminds us that he's faithful and he is true and he is trustworthy. And if he said it, he will do it. And he didn't say it for a joke. He said it because it was real and it was true. And he is faithful and he will do it. But we have to go back to the altar. We have to go back to that place of consecration, back to that place of yielding, back to that place of intercession to be reminded afresh of the promises that he has made over us. 
And as I kept doing this, as I kept consecrating myself every single day and serving my nephews, I could feel like God working on my infrastructure in the craziest way. It was nuts. Like it was like in my body, my soul and my spirit, I could feel like the movement of heaven coming in and the rhythm of heaven, like just aligning me to the heartbeat of what's happening in the throne room. And it felt so beautiful. And although he had already began to do this in me the year before, but as I did it now with my nephews, part of what was going on, my family, part of what was going on, Like, I felt that we were actually making memorial stones for the next generation. Like, I actually felt that the year before, I was making living memorial stones that were to do with my life. But here I was now, with the next generation, and the legacy of my mum, and all three of us, like, creating these living memorial stones for their children and their children and their children and I could feel the delight of the Lord on him like nothing ever before it was like that was his blueprint that was his blueprint of how we go from generation to generation all of us yielded before the Lord and each and every one of us every single breath that we take is a living memorial that says yes our God is for us and not against us and our God isn't just for us he is for our children and their children and their children and that he is faithful and I could feel like as he was working on my infrastructure I could literally feel myself being made into a spiritual house like my being and my spirit and all of this as a dwelling place was building for God a dwelling place my being and my spirit and my soul and the rhythm of my life and my eating and my drinking and my serving my nephews and my creating little things and my consecrating myself every single day was building for him a spiritual house And I love what Ephesians 2, 20 to 22 in the Passion Translation says. It says, you are rising like the perfectly fitted stones of the temple. And your lives are being built up together upon the ideal foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. And best of all, you are connected to the head cornerstone of the building, building, the anointed one, Jesus Christ himself. This entire building is under construction and is continually growing under his supervision until it rises up completed as the holy temple of the Lord himself. This means that God is transforming each one of you into the holy of holies, his dwelling place, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Like I could feel Jesus making me into a spiritual house. And when the scriptures talk about this, about this whole idea of um, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and it refers to this in 1 Peter 2 as well, where Jesus is the cornerstone in the temple. And what it's talking about is the the temple that King Solomon created about a thousand years before Christ. And um, it then got demolished. It then got um, completely destroyed by the Babylonians about... um, maybe 400 years after that and then 70 years after that it got rebuilt and when the temple got rebuilt they would obviously make a space and they would clear it up and they would work on the ground and then they would get like this large stone as the chief cornerstone 
And then they put that chief cornerstone. It was the most important stone in the temple because every other stone was going to be aligned and built upon the chief cornerstone. And only when that chief cornerstone was placed in its position could everything else be correctly aligned and could it not only be placed beside it but placed on top of it correctly so that that structure of the temple would not fall, it would not collapse, it would not be weak, it would not be fragile, it would be trustworthy because it has built itself upon the chief cornerstone. And this is what God is building in us with him as the chief cornerstone. And he has to be the chief cornerstone. And if any of us are trying to build a temple where he's not the chief cornerstone, then our structures are gonna fall. And our lives must be built on Jesus as the chief cornerstone. We cannot try and build, we cannot try and pioneer, we cannot try and step out on anything that is not built upon the solid rock, that isn't built upon Jesus. And when we worship and when we build an altar and when we just adore him, we get transformed and we become like the chief cornerstone and our infrastructure and our shape and everything about us gets formed and fashioned in the image of the chief cornerstone. And we must yield ourselves to that process. We must yield ourselves to being like him. And that comes from that place of adoration. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, where it speaks about, um, you know, building the temple and, and Jesus being the chief cornerstone, it then goes on to talk about all of us being priests and all of us, you know, um, being a temple of God and then us being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood that, you know, showcases the majesty and excellencies of Jesus and how he took us out from darkness into his glorious light. Like that is the mantle of the church as his bride. But any individual calling and any individual purpose and even the purpose of the bride is all built upon Jesus. It's all built upon his adoration. It's all built about him, on him being the object of each and every one of our focus and our days and our worship and our delight. Like everything must be built on him and we must allow him to work on our infrastructure so that every one of our bones and every one of our being and every inch of our flesh just cries out his praise. Like, let there not be anything found inside of us that isn't praising him, that isn't worshipping him, that that for any minute is mistaken, that it's actually all about him. May every fiber of our being be so sure that everything is about him. Everything is about him. And he will, as we pursue him and as we pursue his inheritance and we want him to have it, we want him to have all the praise, we want him to have all the glory as we pursue that purpose and calling comes out of that anyway. Our inheritance comes out of that anyway. As we pursue his reward, that he would have the worship that he is worthy of, that he would be rewarded with that which he died for. As we make that into our pursuit, then purpose and calling and being a royal priesthood and stepping into destiny, all of that comes out of that anyway, out of that place of adoration. Everyone knows who Billy Graham is. 
the greatest preacher in evangelical history, really. He preached to 215 million people live across 185 countries, and then obviously touched hundreds of millions of people through media. He was like counselor and advisor to all the presidents in his time. I mean, he truly made a mark. He was so relevant. He impacted literally every sphere of influence. He was considered the most influential Christian of our time. And he died at the age of 99 last year. In 2011, he was interviewed seven years before he died. And um, he was asked that if there's anything else that you could go back and do differently, is there anything that you would change? And he said, yes. He said, I would study more. I would pray more. I would travel less. I would take less speaking engagements. I took too many of them to too many places around the world. And if I had to do it over again, I would spend more time in meditation and prayer and just telling the Lord how much I love him and adore him. And this is like the most successful Christian man of our time. And he understood that everything is built upon the adoration of Jesus. And that's the one thing that we're doing here on earth that we're still going to be doing in heaven. Everything else will fade away. We can look at someone like Billy Graham and he could be the pinnacle of success here on earth. We can look at the amount of souls that he led to the Lord and the amount of influence he had and look at his calling and be like, wow. That's what we need to aspire towards. And yes, it was an amazing calling. And I truly believe God's well done and good and faithful servant is all over him. But imagine if having so many followers or having so much influence or being that significant on earth. And I'm not saying this about Billy Graham. But imagine if our understanding of what success is and our understanding of what our calling looks like here on earth, what if it's not the same as what heaven's is? What if we've got it wrong? And I'm not saying we have, but it's something worth questioning. What does heaven say success looks like? Like we get caught up here on earth, even as believers, even as Christians, and we think that having a huge amount of influence is successful having a huge following on social media is successful even as Christians we believe this but I saw this quote on Instagram in Pinterest actually and it said being famous on Instagram is like being rich in Monopoly being famous on Instagram is like being rich in Monopoly It's like we can be part of this realm and we can look at the accolades and the achievements and the success criteria for this realm and we can measure ourselves and we can try and go for those things. But imagine if in the real realm, it's like being rich in Monopoly. That it really carries no real weight in the realm that we're really, really called to.
known here on earth is debatable. Are we known in heaven? Like, are we known in heaven? Does heaven know our names? Because when we're building an altar every single day, I'm telling you, heaven knows your name. Heaven gets very, very familiar with you when you're building an altar. And I'm not saying that about myself. I'm just saying that us as children of God, we become familiar in heaven when we adore Jesus. Because Jesus is all that heaven knows. I pray that um, we would truly pursue lives of significance that make a mark in eternity, that role model Christ, that really are lives that aren't afraid to die to self, that aren't afraid to consecrate ourselves every single day and lay everything down at the altar every single day. And when you've given it all up and you've poured yourself out to go lower still, because we have this beautiful example of Christ who gave up his dignity and he gave up his deity and he became human and he laid it all down and it says in the scriptures and after becoming human it says he humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death even the death of the cross May we be a people that are not afraid to humble ourselves still further, to pour ourselves out still further, to go lower still, even if your seasons have looked like lower, 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 lower. Even if every single one of your seasons, as far back as you can remember, has been about sacrifice and has been about laying it all down, I pray for a grave to go lower still. pray for a grace where our worship actually costs us something and as I close I'm going to encourage us to be altar conscious once again that we would be a people that are so determined to build an altar for him every single day And even for the youth, like, I don't know what an altar looks like for you guys. There might be stuff that you guys need to give up. There might be stuff that you've made into your own gods. And you might be building your lives on someone else and not Jesus. But we're going to pray in a minute and I'm going to encourage you guys to pray that you lay down anything that stops you from worshipping Jesus and that you begin to thank him for who he is and what he's done I'm going to ask the worship team to come up please and as we just we're going to go into a bit of time of ministry but this is going to be between you and the Lord because your altar is between you and the Lord and I am going to encourage you guys to come to the front and I'm going to encourage an encounter like I'm going to encourage an encounter I don't want you to go home the same I don't want you to go home without me with the Lord and 
encourage you guys, like where you need to ask for forgiveness, that you will ask for forgiveness. That where you may have neglected your altar, where your altar might be in disrepair because you've been busy, because life has kind of taken over and there's other things going on. You may even be worshipping a different God. You may be worshipping idols right now. And those idols need to come tumbling down today. You might have to repent for desecrating your altar and polluting it. Maybe you've been rebellious. Maybe you've been overly familiar with the Lord. Maybe you've been indifferent. Maybe you've just not simply given him the adoration that he deserves. You might need to ask the Lord to make your altar a fresh place of intercession. Maybe your altar is a place where you worship and adore him and you get lost in everything that he's pouring out. But it doesn't lead to any action. It ends up being just about you and just about you feeling sweet. But actually, maybe the Lord's saying, build an altar so that others can come and lay. Maybe you need to ask him to give you a fresh perspective for an altar for the young. Maybe you need to ask him, who are those right now that are relying on my altar? Maybe you need to ask the Lord to remind you of his promises. Maybe you just simply need to come back to the altar to be reminded of every covenant that he's spoken over your life, every prophetic word that he's given you, every place of just promise where you can worship him over those promises afresh. And maybe he wants to give you a fresh revelation of the living memorials that he is building from generation upon generation through your life where he's going to have you partner with the different generations in your household and in your community and in your spheres of influence so that you can be a living memorial that goes beyond just your own life and maybe you just need to worship him And maybe that's what you do. Maybe every single day you worship and adore him. So let's just keep worshiping and adoring him. And as the guys begin to worship, I'm going to invite you to not lose. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 